Welcome to a Monday night edition of Tisky Sour. We are talking about Keir Starmer's plan to abolish the House of Lords. Is he now our anti-establishment hero? I'll be asking Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm really well, Michael. I'm uh, energized by the news that perhaps Keir Starmer is indeed the radical, liberal, principled voice that we need to renew this country's constitutional order. Or is he? Hmm, enticing, tantalizing there. We're also going to be talking about the latest from Iran. Have they announced they're abolishing the morality police or was that some misreporting? We'll discuss that. Nadim Zahawi has also said some ridiculous things. And Keir Starmer has said some ridiculous things about Jeremy Corbyn. Keir Starmer has unveiled a new plan to reform the UK's constitution. The plan pledges to tackle regional inequalities by creating a legal requirement for Parliament to respect the wishes of local governments, and it proposes to abolish the House of Lords. The proposals have been two years in the making and are contained in the report of Labour's Commission on the UK's Future, which was led by Gordon Brown. Here's Starmer announcing its launch at a press conference earlier today. I asked them to put together a proposal for the biggest ever transfer of power from Westminster to the British people, so that if Labour wins the next election, Britain will see a change, not just in who governs, but how we are governed. The tools to a fairer society and a stronger economy placed directly in the hands of working people. So together we can build an economy, not just for the many, but by the many and of the many. Now, redistribution is a good thing, but it's not a one-word plan for a fair society or a strong economy. By empowering our towns, cities, regions and nations to work together on local growth plans, Labour will reignite our economy. New powers over skills, transport, planning and culture, all helping to drive growth by developing hundreds of clusters of economic activity. Labour will rebuild trust by reforming the centre of government, cleaning up sleaze, nourishing the relationship between central government and the devolved authorities, and replacing the unelected House of Lords with a new, smaller, democratically elected second chamber. Not only less expensive, but also representing the regions and nations of the United Kingdom. There's not a lot of detail there about how this devolution of political power will work, and it's a pledge that we've heard before from both of the big parties. But the most eye-catching commitment there is the promise to abolish the House of Lords and replace it with a democratically elected second chamber. On Sky News, Starmer was asked how this would work and how solid this promise was. Will you abolish the House of Lords and will it be in your first term? Uh, yes, we do want to abolish the House of Lords. I don't think anybody can defend the House of Lords. It's one of the recommendations, as you know, in today's um, report. What we're going to do after today is now consult on um, those recommendations, test them, and in particular, look at how can they be implemented. Because what I want to do to answer your question is to make sure that the talking bit, which is how do we now implement this, it carries on now. But by the time we get to the election, we can get to the delivery um, bit. And everything within the report is intended to be deliverable. And the discussion we'll now have is how do we implement? When do we implement? House of Lords is obviously important. But the central thrust term? of this is... It, 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 
Well, look, uh, as I say, there's now discussion about when we're going to implement. Do I you hope it's when I asked for the term. report? Yes, I do, because when I asked when I asked Gordon Brown to set up the commission and do this, I said what I want is recommendations that are capable of being implemented in the first term. Obviously, that I'm not going to pretend that there isn't going to be a discussion about implementing, because if we're going to push this amount of power away from Whitehall, Westminster, we do need to talk to the businesses, the communities, etc., to say exactly how is this going to be implemented, because we're going to get one shot at fixing our economy and fixing our politics, and I want to make sure we get it absolutely right. So I'm not pretending there won't be this period of consultation about implementation, um, but okay. do I want to get on with this? Do I want the next Labour government to be absolutely delivering from day one, no longer talking? Yes, that's absolutely my ambition. The plan goes into a little more detail about what a new second chamber would look like, saying this. The House of Lords should be replaced with a new second chamber of parliament and assembly of the nations and regions. The new second chamber should complement the House of Commons with a new role of safeguarding the UK constitution, subject to an agreed procedure that sustains the primacy of the House of Commons. The new second chamber must have electoral legitimacy and should be markedly smaller than the present Lords chosen on a different electoral cycle, with the precise composition and method of election matters for consultation. What shape any actual recommendations take looks very much up for grabs, but the overall direction pretty much reflects what the public thinks on this. This tracker from YouGov looks at who the public think should be in a second chamber, and it's remained more or less constant over the last three years. The purple line is those polled who want a house that's mostly elected. That's been pretty steady at just under 50%. The blue line is those who opt for a mix of elected and appointed members. It's now around 25% after it took a dive around the time of a scandal around Johnson's 2020 appointments to the House of Lords. The orange line is the don't knows and the pink line is those who favour a wholly appointed house now at 6%. So if Labour can work out the details, it looks like they might be onto a winner and they've set themselves until the next election to do it. But what about the other measures in the plan? Well, it contains tons of proposals, including these. Eliminating foreign money from UK politics, banning the vast majority of second jobs for MPs, a new independent integrity and ethics commission with the power to investigate breaches of a new stronger code of conduct, a powerful new body to ensure all appointments in public life are made on merit, juries of ordinary citizens to determine whether rules have been broken, and we have more economic and political power will be handed to regional mayors, local authorities and devolved governments, 50,000 civil service posts transferred outside London. And they say there should be an economic growth or prosperity plan for every town and city to contribute to our shared prosperity, owned by councils, mayors, towns and cities working in partnerships. That's all quotes from the text from that report. Now, one criticism that Starmer has received is that this is all pretty technical when we're in the middle of a recession and a cost of living crisis. So the question is, if Labour wins power at the next election, how will this plan improve people's lives from day one? Well, this was Starmer's answer. This is vitally important. If we ask ourselves in this room across the country, what is the single biggest thing that's holding us back? It's failure of economic growth over the last 12 years. I profoundly believe that amongst the causes for that is because we have not allowed and empowered every part of our country to play its part 
in building our economy. We've, allowed, we've relied far too much on London and the South East. We have not let the whole country play its part. This addresses that question. And I can tell you, wherever I am across the country, whether it's Burnley, Hull, Blackpool, Stirling, Sunderland, Southampton, Everybody I meet, and so do my shadow cabinet, they meet communities and businesses and people that say, we've got ideas, we've got innovation, we want our community and our place to be even better than it is. We just need a government that shares our ambition, shares our vision for the future. So this could not be more relevant. And, you know, I'm fed up to the back teeth with sticking plasters for the problems that we've got. The underlying problem is our economy isn't working. This is a strong, compelling set of recommendations that do what politicians have all agreed needs to be done, but nobody's actually done it, which is to be bold enough to say, but we've got to stop those in Westminster and Whitehall pretending that they know best about the communities that desperately want to play their part in the future. We're going to transfer that power to them, rebuild our economy. And I don't think this is the complete opposite of a discussion in Westminster. It's accepting that Westminster is not the place for those decisions to be made. They've got to be made elsewhere. That's probably the most animated I've ever seen, Keir Starmer. I don't know if that tells us anything about their commitment to these proposals. But what stood out to me? Um, Aaron, I want your opinion on this. How important is this? Do you buy that Keir Starmer is committed to transferring wealth and power throughout the United Kingdom? Well, not particularly, no. But I thought just in those brief excerpts that we saw, there are some quite clear contradictions. So even for people who might not necessarily agree with what I just said, let me walk you through them. Firstly, he's saying that there is far too much power at Westminster, and yet he wants what is presently the House of Lords, to be a second chamber which represents and reflects the regions and nations. Surely that's the precise opposite of giving power away if you're saying that actually let's have them in London. Secondly, I obviously agree with the fact that we need to be distributing, giving more power away. And like I say, there's a tension with what he's proposing with regards to the laws. But of course, that's really at odds with how the Labour Party in recent months has overseen selections. The political machine in London and regional directors favourable to the Labour leadership have, to a large extent, not necessarily picked certain candidates for specific seats, so that has happened, but generally speaking, they've tried to limit the number of candidates so that the only ones on the ballot are favourable, amenable to the London leadership. Again, very much at odds with what he's saying there. We want to give power away. Well, you can create new, you know, mayors and give new powers to existing city mayors, and you can give new powers to local authorities. But if it's the central machine determining the candidate for the West of England mayor, as was the case with Dan Jarvis uh, and the Starmer leadership, or Keir Starmer going to Scottish Labour and saying that Richard Leonard needs to stand aside, that doesn't look like giving power away. The complete opposite, it's Westminster micromanagement. Thirdly, he uses the word sticking plaster. For me, the substantial proposals with regards to House of Lords reform look like a sticking plaster. Right now, the House of Lords can't generate new proposals and it can't block legislation. That's what this new, quote-unquote, new chamber would do. So it wouldn't be able to create new laws, it wouldn't be able to stop laws. By the way, I don't think the Lords should be able to stop laws. I think that's an argument for unicameralism, one chamber. But as I'm saying, this is effectively a continuation of really a dud, right? So it can propose amendments at present, and that's basically what Starmer is suggesting it should do in the, in the future too. It will have absolutely no power over taxation. 
it won't in any way be able to affect, like I say, just, just, just legislation. And so you can see again how this new, <laughs> this rebranded House of Lords, which I think is the definition of a second plaster, would really just be a home for wannabes, has-beens, party bag carriers, and people on the make, which is presently what the House of Lords is. It's the dumping ground for the political parties and their people when they can't get them into policy advisor job or a special advisor job or a, a parliamentary job or a member of parliament. So I like what this is responding to, massive failures with regards to the House of Lords. And yes, we have a massive concentration of economic and political power in this country. I think rhetorically, Starmer is saying the absolutely right thing. But when you look on the substance here, particularly in the House of Lords, I don't think he's offering particularly much. On more powers to local authorities and mayors, much better, very good. But like I say, beware of somebody who claims to be giving power away when they're fixing local elections to their perceived self-interest. I mean, I certainly take your point about sort of the duplicity and whether we should believe Starmer is interested in giving power away when his record as Labour Party leader suggests the opposite. But I mean, when it comes to the concrete, well, I say concrete, they're not actually that concrete because it's more a statement of intent than any sort of plan for House of Lords reform. It's just going to be a, a chamber of the regions and nations with some elected accountability. So he, he hasn't said whether it'll be directly elected or whether it'll be picked by some other elected body. I mean, I think it, how it works in Germany is you have sort of you have a second chamber where people are sent there directly from state governments. So it's basically state governments choosing delegates to go to, well, Berlin in that case. What kind of reform would impress you? What kind of proposal for a second chamber would get you thinking, yeah, this is, this is fundamental, this is interesting? Well, quickly, Michael, you're saying the German model is people from local federal government then convene in Berlin. We don't even have that architecture. We don't have a federal system. You know, we don't have regional parliaments and assemblies. So none of that e is even there for it to be represented Westminster. We need to build the federal bit beyond London first. Um, what would look good to me is, yes, if we're going to have a second chamber, and I think there are very powerful arguments for no second chamber, I think the really smart thing they've done here is to reduce the number of legislators. So I think the Tory counter argument of, well, people don't want more politicians. Labour have a wonderful response. Well, you're right. That's why we want fewer of them. It's just they'll be voted for. Fantastic, very smart. And whoever was Labour leader, I would say that's good politics, but also good policy. Where I would differ with these particular proposals, Michael, is I think they should be elected on the basis of PR. And I think we have a we have a we have a massive constitutional overhaul needed in this country. Now, of course, if you do that, it undermines the sanctity of the House of Commons, you might get the argument that therefore the Lords is more democratically rep representative of the country, therefore it's more legitimate, that creates a constitutional crisis. That's why they'll never do it. But I think really we should have one for sure elected chamber along the lines of additional member system like in Germany, proportional, but still retaining the constituency link. And I would probably get rid of a second chamber personally. I don't really see the point at present, it can't suggest, it can't generate legislation, it can't stop legislation. That's still being proposed here, or it can propose amendments. I mean, really? Do we need that? We're talking about reviving politics outside of London. Let's get on with it. I don't see the argument for several hundred talented people, ideally they're talented, sitting in London, not doing really very much. They should be in Scotland, the Northeast, the Southwest, the West Midlands. That's where they can make a difference. I mean, I suppose they'd say they, they scrutinize the legislation even if they can't sort of proactively 
change it. I mean, I think I agree with what you're saying. That, like, the key bit to the German model isn't this second chamber where state legislatures and state governments send their delegates. It's that they have state legislatures and, and state governments. So it's, it's, it's sort of the, the second chamber representing these regions and nations. Is it all going to be a little bit irrelevant given that we don't have properly um, you know, accountable and powerful regions and nations in the first place? I mean, with, nat- with nations, we kind of do now. Um, but with regions, we most certainly don't. We're going to stick on this story for a little bit longer. Before we move on, though, Navarra Media is funded by you. We're free from the control of media oligarchs because nearly all of our income comes from small donations, otherwise from foundations, which you'll definitely be um, comfortable with. If you want to become a regular supporter, head to navarramedia.com slash support. As ever, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to like the video and hit the subscribe button. Now, I want to have a quick look at one Tory response to Labour's plan. Greg Hans is Minister for Trade Policy, and he tweeted this in response to the report's publication. Labour are not fit or ready for government. They only have free policies, 20% tax on independent schools, ending non-DOM taxation, which they allowed to thrive in 1997 to 2010, abolish the Lords, none of which will do much to help the economy recover from COVID and Putin's war. An interesting tweet, because, I mean, the attack line the Tories are using is saying, look, we're in an economic crisis. Why are Labour talking about the Constitution? One, I mean, even the fact of them saying that is kind of a win for Labour because it's them saying, we fucked up the economy, why aren't you attacking us on the economy? And two, Greg Hans, government minister, I think he's just tweeting out three quite popular policies there. 20% tax on independent schools. Everyone thinks that's a good idea. Ending non-dom taxation. Everyone thinks that's a good idea. Abolish the Lords. I mean, as we showed you in those polling, pretty much everyone agrees. Aaron, what do you make of this? Sort of the, the party politics. I think the idea that you should be talking about the economy right now, Keir Starmer's clearly got that message. I listened to his interview on the Today program, and he was sort of like, every question he was sort of saying, this is about the economy, this is about the economy. I thought you handled it reasonably well. I suppose my assessment, this is Greg Hans just pointing out really popular Labour policies. Yeah, they're really at a loss, aren't they, Michael? The claim that Labour wants to introduce a 20% tax on schools, they mean, I think they presumably mean VAT there. I think there may be other taxes too, ideally. There may be certain recalibrations with regards to charitable status and and whatnot. But look, if you're a business and you're paying VAT and you're being hammered right now, and of course many businesses are, many business owners I speak to say, you know what would help me more than anything else? Cut to VAT just for six, 12 months, five, 10%, 5%. Like we had after 2008, it'd be a game changer. You'd keep my head above water. You've got those people who may be lifelong Tory voters then seeing a Tory minister saying, well, you know what? Private schools shouldn't pay that at all. Remarkable. So yes, some of the very best messages when it comes to Labour policy aren't just Tory ministers, Michael, but also it should be said, the right-wing tabloid press. You know, I see time after time after time, the Sun, the Mail, the Express, the Telegraph, having a big splash on how Labour are going to make private schools, which are private businesses after all, it's in the name, private, pay taxes just like other private businesses. I don't understand why they think that's going to land as something negative to Labour, but credit where it's due. I think it does show that on their communications policy and the relationship between the two, Labour really haven't given the Tories much to attack them on. Let's go to our next story. Iran has been rocked by weeks of protests since the death of Masa Amini. That was after her arrest by the country's morality police. Now, those protests have continued despite a deadly crackdown by the state. And according to the Human Rights Activist News Agency, at least 419 demonstrators have so far been killed. 
The agency has also reported the deaths of 54 security personnel. Yet despite the high costs incurred by protesters, this weekend there was the first sliver of what looked like good news. These were how comments by Iran's Attorney General were translated in the Western press. They quote, Morality police have nothing to do with the judiciary and have been abolished. Of course, the judiciary continues to monitor behavioural actions. Now, that statement was reported like this in the New York Times. Iran is shutting down morality police after months of protests, official says. And the Wall Street Journal um, suggested the government were also considering changing hijab laws. But Iranian activists have been sceptical of the government's commitment to reform. And state media has now suggested the attorney general had been misinterpreted. Earlier today, I spoke to Aguila Jafari Marbini, a community worker based in London who came to the UK from Iran as a child of political refugees. I started by asking her what she makes of the statement from the Attorney General. To be honest, the statement that was announced, I read it, I read the whole statement, and it's an incredibly ambiguous way. He's, he's worded it incredibly ambiguously, but, um, but it's actually that most uh, commentators inside and outside of Iran are not really taking it seriously, and they seem to think it was just some throwaway remark, which I, which I to be honest, given um, what kind of a person the Attorney General is, I would not be surprised that it was some sort of a throwaway remark. The sentence itself, actually, he said something like, the people who started the, the morality police will end it. And I'm not, so that's not really clear what that means. People are not really clear. And also, what is really interesting is that in the last week or so, in Tehran, in the capital city, they... Um, that people have seen a lot less of the morality police, but in more kind of religious cities like Mashhad and Qom, apparently they have started to become more aggressive. There's more of them around. So actually, it's not really a consistent statement and it's not really clear what's going on. We haven't had any confirmation, let's say, that the, the morality police is being abolished. Does this even being talked about suggest that the government is considering reform and is listening to the protesters instead of sort of obstinately saying, all we're going to do is crack down? I don't think they're considering reform. However, I definitely think they, they are now acknowledging that th things can't go on as they are. And in the last week or so, there have been discussions, they've been bringing back the reformists, as it were, into the fold. So there have been discussions, you know, informal discussions with their daughter of previous former president Rafsanjani and uh, Mujtaba uh, Khamenei, the Supreme Leader's son. There's been another discussion between Khatami and some other people. So, so they are recognizing that things can't go on as they are. Um, however, as uh, in terms of serious reforms, I think what your listeners, what your viewers should recognize is that what people are asking is serious fundamental system change. People want democracy. And just by shifting the chairs of the Titanic, that's not going to get achieved. And actually, very much you can see that today because there have been three days of strikes have been called. And all the pictures that I've been following from the various bazaars in Tehran, they, they've all closed down. It's, it's eerie. It's, it's, you know, for me, who I have been to those bazaars and how bustling they are. It's really eerie how quiet they are. And also the university students are very much actually their slogans of what they're chanting is very much reflecting that, that this is not about the hijab. It's not about Islam. It's about we just want to have democracy and we want to be allowed to choose our own lives. And that's really important to recognize. 
Yeah, and I'm interested in that. I've seen lots of, you know, activists sort of saying, you know, even if we take them at their word, even if they do get rid of the, the morality police and no longer enforce the hijab, that, that's not relevant. This has now become a movement to overthrow the regime, as it were. And I suppose I'm interested here because, you know, we have seen recent examples of, of revolutions in the region that haven't necessarily ended particularly well. So you can think about Egypt, where it ended up with kind of an even more brutal regime than the one which was overthrown. Or you've got Syria, where you had a, you know, incredibly... Um, deadly civil war. I mean, how is the experiences of, I suppose, the Arab Spring and the the years that followed that, how is that affecting people in Iran? Are there people who are sort of saying, oh, actually, you know, revolution, if we were to go that far, could be a bit risky? I think one of the things that's really interesting about Iran is that in the last 120 years, there have been three revolutions already. And the 1979 revolution was the third revolution. So this is a country that is used to kind of slow change and, uh, but, but like, well, not slow change, but change with, um, through revolution. So this is something that people know, and this is it's, so it's quite common. So that's not that's that's the first place to start. But actually, the difference between um, the other places in Middle East is that I think. What I'm seeing this time around, as opposed to perhaps in um, 10 years ago and the other demonstrations that have been happening in Iran, is that people are very specific about what they're asking. So one of the most popular chants has been death to the dictator, whether the clergy or the Shah, Shah with reference to the previous regime. So that's really clear. People are asking for democracy and they're, um, and they're constant. The other one that's very commonly used other than women, life, freedom is just chanting freedom, freedom, freedom. And so I think that there is clarity in what people want. However, you're quite right that there is danger that minority people. So, for instance, in London, I mean, not that that's important in London, what we are seeing, their demonstrators are often from reactionary, regressive uh, groups like the monarchists standing up and people don't really get involved, but people outside of those groups don't really get involved as much. So it is because of lack of leadership, it is really important to pay attention. But I think from within the student movement, there is the possibility because it's growing, I think that there is some leadership within the student uh, movement itself because if there wasn't, then you wouldn't have seen 70-odd days people carrying on because it's been brutal. And unless there's some sort of coordination and coordinated activity, you wouldn't have had people still coming in and demonstrating because literally if you leave your house and you're going for a demonstration, you know that it's very likely it's likely that you might end up injured or uh, end up going to prison or even dead. So it's, you know, the fact that people are going tells me that there must be some sort of an internal, at least not leadership would be too strong a word for it, but some sort of coordinating body, if you like. And do we have a sense of how, I mean, obviously we can see the protests are widespread, they're big, they're, you know, sustaining themselves pretty well, and that's in the face of really harsh opposition. Is there any way that we can tell how widely supported they are in the population at at large? I mean, I assume there aren't opinion polls, sort of like, how do we, how could we get a sense of that? So what I would say personally is the thing, the only thing, the only measure would be through strikes, actually. The strike actions are the things that are telling. Also, the other thing that would be 
um, I would um, I would rely on is the kind of the kind of people who are attending these demonstrations. So at the moment, you're seeing loads and lots of people with headscarves and even charter attending the demonstration, and that tells you that it's not you know some kind of middle class uprising people wanting. And also, a big part of this is an economic crisis that Iran has suffered as a result of sanctions. I very much. I'm against the sanctions because sanctions are just crippling for the Iranian people and not the regime. But all of those things will influence um, how many people are attending the demonstrations. And, and particularly in places like Kurdistan and Hormuzgan, where oppression has always been much heavier. People have a lot less to lose, if you like. But I, are we certain, but can we put a number on it? I haven't seen any convincing numbers and I haven't seen anything that I would I would I could rely on. After 30 years of living in the UK, I can actually see a time where I might be able to go back and perhaps even live in Iran. However, the thing that's really dangerous is this combination of monarchists and Masi Ali Najad, who is kind of has been very open saying any openly saying I will cooperate. Um, and take money from anyone and anything, any organization in order to get rid of this regime. The objective most definitely should not be just getting rid of this regime. People should be very clear in, in what they want afterwards because they do not want another revolution where the revolution gets hijacked by another reactionary regime. That was Aguila Jafari Marbini speaking to me earlier today. Aaron, after watching that interview, I want to know if you've got any thoughts on this particular story. I think for a European audience, in particular British audience, I think it's really important to impress upon them the fact that Iran isn't a dictatorship. They might think, Aaron Mastani, apologism for Tehran. It isn't. It's a polyarchy. Now, what does that mean? It means that the religious clerical elites in Iran have a great deal of power, but also so does an institution called the, um, the SEPA, the Revolutionary Guard. I'm sure many of our audience have heard about it. So this is what I mean by a polyarchy of multiple sites of power within the regime. Now, the Revolutionary Guard isn't just what you may have seen on the TV. It's their equivalent of, you know, extraterritorial special forces, a bit like the SAS. It is that, but it also encompasses universities. Many senior politicians are former Revolutionary Guard officers. It includes civil servants. So you have about 150,000 members of the SEPA, bureaucrats, soldiers, politicians, university lecturers engineers, you know, they they have their own air force, they have their own navy within the Revolutionary Guard, independent of the actual national, you know, uh, army, navy, air force. They have their own wings of these things. And it's the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard's air wing, which is developing their ballistic missile technology, for instance. Very strange, I know, perhaps for a British audience, but, but there we are. So I think it's really dangerous to look at this like Libya. Because in Libya, it was get rid of Gaddafi, get rid of several hundred people around Gaddafi and regime change. It's completely different. It's much closer to, say, China with the Chinese Communist Party, a very broad layer of people who view their life chances as being inherently tied up with the perpetuation of a certain regime. I, I think that's a really important point to really drill down on. I see with Iran, I think, four outcomes here. The first is civil war. Syria. I think that's really plausible. The second is the return of the Shah. And I, it's great that the guest said that actually just a second ago, uh, Michael. 
it's really important to say that amongst US expats and British expats in London, but particularly the, in the US, they want the Shah back, Reza Pahlavi, the son of the, the former Shah, which would be terrible. Important to say, Iran had a, a socialist or social democratic prime minister, Mossadegh, in the 1950s. He tries to bring oil into public ownership. The Shah's father works with the US and the UK to get rid of this man. He was so dangerous to the royalist establishment in Iran, he couldn't even be buried. He had to be buried in his own living room, Michael, because they thought a public funeral would cause public disorder and uh, could escalate. So those are the kinds of people now being championed by people on the streets in New York. That's not good. New York or Washington or wherever. Not all American Iranians, but many of them. So civil war, return of the monarchy, complete regime change, and Iran becomes some liberal democracy. I think that's unlikely. But it's, it's plausible. It's clearly an option, and people are saying that. And then fourth is, of course, reform within the regime. I think that's, again, you'd want to see that happen, for instance, and of course, that's less likely to lead to bloodshed. But the problem is, Iran has been subject to such stringent uh, sanctions for so long, I can't really think of a precedent where you have a country that diplomatically, economically isolated, opening up internally. I think you generally need one alongside the other, a bit like with the Soviet Union after Perestroika. So those are the four outcomes there. Personally, I'm not very optimistic about Iran. And I, I do find it strange that people look at a country in West Asia after Iraq, after Syria, I mean, after certain countries in, in North Africa too, Egypt, for instance, Libya. I'm really surprised they look at a country in that part of the world and they say, you know what? There's not many social conservatives there. All those people are human rights loving liberals. No, there are many, many people in Iran who support the regime. I agree with what Aguilar just said. I think it's far fewer than 10, 15 years ago, and it may even be a minority. I mean, we don't know. There's no reliable polling. But the idea which you see repeatedly amongst Iranian-American Instagram influencers, nobody in Iran supports the regime, it's just, it's, 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 it's categorically not true. It's just categorically not true. This is a, a theocratic regime. And of course, many people in that part of the world, I think, as we've probably learned over the last 20 years with our foreign policy mishaps, are religious. So uh, I think the utopianism does rather great. But finally, to return to the point of the Revolutionary Guard, Michael, I can see an outcome here where Iran has a sort of military strongman, a bit like Sisi, who comes from the Revolutionary Guard because there is just too much chaos and, and the sort of clerical elites who've managed the country since 1979 can no longer keep a lid on things. I think that's really, really plausible. And of course, that's infinitely preferable to a Syrian civil war style situation. But that isn't what people on the streets are calling for. So hard-headed pragmatism, very good. And of course, these protests are making a massive, massive difference, even if it's purely rhetorical. For an Iranian legislator, you're talking in the, those terms, of even moderate reforms to the religious police, let alone getting rid of them. And by the way, it is just rhetoric. Even that, I think, is really significant and shouldn't be underestimated. Next story. The Tories are getting desperate in their argument as to why nurses should accept further pay cuts. This was Nadim Zahawi speaking to Sky's Sophie Ridge on Sunday. You're talking about not chasing inflation. Mm. For lots of people who are on low-pay jobs, they're not chasing inflation. They're trying to get a pay that is matching the cost of living because they're looking at their shopping bills going up. They're looking at their, their energy bills going up. They want a pay to be reflecting how much more they're having to spend on things. It's and not about embedding inflation for them. It's about surviving. Of course, and absolutely, which is why uh, the Chancellor came to the dispatch box and delivered a £150 billion energy package. That's this, by the way, if you take that 
into equivalence. That's the equivalent of the whole of the NHS um, to support people's households. Otherwise, their energy bills would have uh, spiked to support businesses as well. Uh, the money we're putting into helping those most vulnerable, uh, the 8 million most vulnerable households, um, is significant. We have to come together. This is not a time to be divided, to, I hope, send a very clear message to Mr. Putin that he can't use energy as a weapon in this way, and we will remain united, which is why we've accepted accepted the pay review bodies on I guess the, the NHS I guess and people, on schools. You know, a nurse others. on 20 grand a year, you, you would think that maybe there are other ways of sending Putin a clear message on Ukraine rather than the fact that you're going to have to well, no, have a real-term pay we, cut. The nurses' pay has been cut by up to 20% over the past decade, but Zahawi thinks they should now accept further cuts to their pay so we can stick it to Vladimir Putin. I'm personally not convinced, but later on Times Radio, Zahawi was given a chance to explain his reasoning. And he called on nurses actually to send a message to the Russian leader and not go on strike. I mean, how are those two issues linked? I'm going to tell you, all of us, I wasn't just nurses, I'm saying we should all send a message to President Putin because Putin is using energy as a weapon uh, because he's failing so badly in this illegal war in Ukraine. If you look at the Office for Budget Responsibility, the OBR, uh, at the time of the autumn statement, uh, they said that the, the bulk of that inflation, which is hurting the most vulnerable in our society, is because of the sharp rise in gas prices because of Putin. Putin wants us to be divided on this issue. If we chase inflation uh, busting or inflation uh, 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 you know, targeting uh, uh, public sector pay, uh, then we will embed inflation for much longer and hurt the most vulnerable. What I'm saying is, uh, as Chancellor, I accepted my first weekend, I accepted the public sector pay review body's recommendations on nurses' pay, on teachers and others. That's what we should be doing, coming together now and making sure we, we, we send that clear message to Putin that, that we're not going to be divided in our country. We're going to be together. We will weather the storm in 2023 and come out the other much stronger. Can you understand why nurses and others in the public sector would find that quite offensive? Well, all I would say is let's all reflect and think about what Putin is doing. There is a price to pay for peace, and he is deliberately using energy as a yes. Weapon, but forgive me, it's not just about energy. It's so about it's it not. It's it isn't inflation. just about energy, actually. It's Even without, if you let it's me finish, it is about inflation. Yes, it is about inflation, but it's also about it's also about much longer decline in pay, which nurses have said has been happening over the last decade. It's not just about what's happened in the last year. Okay, and and last year when public sector pay was frozen, the nurses received 3% because they do an incredible job. Of course, we have to be thankful to them. The public pay review body recommended a, an increase this year of £1,400, which we have accepted. There is a price to pay for peace, and it's accepting 10 years of pay cuts before a war started. Aaron, was there any part of that argument that made any sense to you at all? No, none at all. And also, Michael, it's important to say Nadim Zahawi is probably the worst possible messenger messenger when it comes to this stuff. I think his his property portfolio, and look, it may be held jointly with his his wife, but look, it's his property portfolio belongs to her. They're one legal entity. I think it's worth approximately fifty million pounds. And this is somebody with that kind of extraordinary wealth, co-founder of uh, YouGov, of course. Um, this kind of extraordinary wealth saying to nurses. Who have seen their real pay cut by up to 20%. I think the average nurse is around 10%. But by the end of 2023, they're looking at the average nurse is looking at being 20% poorer than in 2010. 
The average nurse today graduates with £54,000 worth of debt. Because of Tory proposals and changes to student finance from 2023, they will be the worst affected. They will pay more than they were before because, of course, uh, the duration of the repayment is, is going to be extended. So people who can't pay it back are going to have to pay interest for longer. Nurses generally fall into that category. So lots of debt, falling re real pay year after year. You're much poorer than you were 12 years ago. There are six NHS trusts in the UK, Michael, which either have food banks or voucher systems where staff eat. And then you have a man whose property portfolio is worth around £50 million saying that they're unwitting tools for the Kremlin. It's not just distasteful, it's disgusting, but also it's so outrageously stupid that even Times Radio, Kate McCann, I think she's previously been at The Telegraph, Talk TV, Sky, a very professional, I'm not suggesting she's anything otherwise, but you know, these are meant to be the kinds of outlets broadly amenable to the Conservative Party. I think even they are incredulous at this. Bill had that story earlier on with regards to their attack lines on Labour being, oh, wow, you want to make private schools pay their tax. This is in the same league as that really exposes the extent of the Conservative Party's problems. Yeah, I don't think anyone is buying this argument. Nurses can't get a pay rise because it would help Vladimir Putin. I mean, the argument he's making there is that if you give nurses a pay rise, that will cause some wage price spiral. But I mean, one, given that we, you know, healthcare doesn't have a cost, it's free at the point of delivery. So the government absorbs all of the, the prices. So all they'd need to do is increase taxes on the rich, right? Which would be deflationary. Because just got to say to him, like, you can't have a wage price spiral in the public sector. You just need to tax more people so that what people's wages can keep up with, with inflation. It doesn't make any sense. Final story. Keir Starmer has appeared on Radio 4's Today programme, where host Michelle Hussein asked him this. Do you believe that Jeremy Corbyn will be the Labour candidate for Islington North in the next election? I don't see the circumstances in which that can happen. Um, obviously, we've not got to the selection of that particular constituency yet, um, but I don't see the circumstances so in which Jeremy soon, Corbyn will stand as a Labour uh, a candidate. How, how, how soon do you move on to select that Labour candidate then? Well, we're going through, we're going through um, various constituencies um, at the moment. We've, the ones we've selected for first are the ones that are the most marginal. Um, so we're working through the constituencies. But um, as I say, I don't see the circumstance in which Jeremy Corbyn will stand at the next election as a Labour MP. Starmer withdrew the whip from Corbyn in 2020, who holds a majority of 26,000 in his Islington North constituency. And Starmer's statement about Corbyn comes on the same day that he launched a big Labour report on devolving political power to local communities. Though that isn't something he seems to believe when it comes to local people selecting the Labour MPs who will represent them. It's an irony that Corbyn picked up on in this tweet. So he said, A transfer of power away from Westminster to local communities is long overdue. The same principles of devolution and democracy should apply to our parties. Members should choose their candidates, devise policy, and decide what their movement stands for. Of course, Corbyn isn't only referring to his own case there, because it looks like Starmer and his team have been bypassing local wishes across the country. They've been barring left-leaning candidates from shortlists and providing unofficial help to their preferred candidates. Michael Crick is a widely respected journalist. He worked for the BBC and was a founding member of Channel 4 News, and he's been following the ins and outs of Labour's dodgy selection processes. In an article published on Unheard, he wrote this, Labour's candidates team is busy working in the background deciding seat by seat who they do want. They have to 
operate surreptitiously as local parties guard their independence and do not like to be pushed around. Nor does it do a candidate any good to be known as the choice of the leader of the opposition's office, the lotto contender. But in most selections, it doesn't take much to work out who lotto is backing. Lotto contenders will be advised about how to make the most of any local routes, and they'll be introduced to key local Labour figures. The chosen ones may even be consulted by national Labour fixers on when the selection should ideally take place. Nor do Labour officials appear to care if a favoured candidate breaks the party's tight spending rules for candidate campaigns. It's amazing how much some candidates manage to do with their limited budgets. But the most contentious issue is the highly prized list in each constituency of each party member and their contact details. Having spoken to a number of those involved in the selection process, anointed or lotto contenders appear to have a remarkable ability to obtain membership lists before their ordinary rivals. They may have been leaked by local party officials or by local councillors or from someone on high in regional or national HQ. And any such leak almost certainly breaks data protection law. Contenders who stick to the rules are only sent local members' details once the shortlist has been drawn up. This gives them about a fortnight to contact every voter, which is almost impossible to do individually, given some parties have 2,000 members. So far, there have been almost 60 candidate selections around the country, and only one of them has resulted in a left-leaning candidate. That's Pfizer Shaheen, who will challenge Ian Duncan Smith's Chinkford and Woodford seat. So what happened to the others? Well, Lauren Townsend is a Labour councillor in Milton Keynes. She's lived in the city all her life. In October, she applied to be the Labour parliamentary candidate for Milton Keynes North, where she had the backing of six Labour-affiliated trade unions. Still, the NEC blocked her. Why? Among the reasons given was that Townsend had, quote, supported other political parties by liking a tweet from Nicola Sturgeon announcing a negative COVID test. And she was accused of being involved with the Green New Deal campaign group, which is a grassroots political movement with no party affiliation. Emma Dentcote was MP for Kensington between 2017 and 2019, beating the Tories in a traditional stronghold. And she's well known for her work on behalf of victims of the Grenfell fire. Dentcote lost her seat in 2019, but tried to stand as the candidate again this year. According to The Guardian, she was blocked after being presented with a dossier that contained tabloid stories about her and also because she had spoken at a Stop the War coalition rally in the past. Finally, Maurice McLeod is a friend of the show and Labour councillor in Battersea Park. He's also a lifelong socialist and anti-racist campaigner. He tried to stand as a Labour candidate in Peckham and Camberwell, but he was blocked. According to Labour, it was because of historic social media posts, which included retweeting a post by Green Party MP Caroline Lucas. According to McLeod, it's because Labour, quote, sees no place in its ranks for black and brown socialists. Aaron, your thoughts on Michael Crick picking up on these stitch-ups, which we've discussed many times before on this show, and Keir Starmer's comments about Jeremy Corbyn? Good for Michael Crick. I mean, this is the man who authored the famous book on the militant tendency within the Labour Party. He's never been seen as a friend of the left. And I think it makes these assertions all the more credible. You know, this is not Michael Walker or Aaron Bastani, you know, people who have in the past quite overtly said, I am a socialist. We, we say that here in Navarro Media so that our audience, you can be a conservative or a Lib Dem or a Green or, or whatever, you know our politics and where we're coming from. And so you can receive what we're saying with that context. I think that's what journalists should do. In the case of Michael Crick, he doesn't need to do that. We know his feelings on the matter because he wrote this book on the militant. So for him to be saying this, covering this topic, I think he's probably the most credible person imaginable who could be making the assertions with regards to essentially 
attempts at rigging by, by the Labour leadership. But how it works in practice is really regional directors try and minimise shortlists and maximise the possibility of certain candidates winning or blocking, as you've just stated with those several examples, candidates from the left from even being put to membership. They would have been the favourites in those three instances. Important to say, Michael, as well, it's, it's not just those three people. Another example, Doina Cornell in Stroud. She was the leader of the council. She had nominations from every single major trade union except for the GMB nationally. She was backed by the local GMB regionally, but not the national GMB. Very strange. She was uh, leading, you know, um, uh, a progressive a progressive coalition to, to run the council with the Lib Dems and I think and the Greens. Uh, her deputy leader is very involved in activism with regards to labour and proportional representation. You know, these are not, you know, uh, John McDonnell circa 1994. These are people who are very much in keeping with the, the mainstream Labour Party. You know, this is the leader of a council. Important to say, of course, like you said, Maurice McLeod, also a councillor, as is Evident Code, as is Laura Townsend. Um, and they're being blocked. There are many, many other instances of this too. What does worry me, Michael, is that, you know, for now in 2022, those people are being blocked from standing for parliament. When they go to be reselected as councillors, whether that's in 2023 or 2024, I think not necessarily in those three high-profile cases, though that may happen too, but I think across the country, many left-wingers who are councillors who've stood to be parliamentary candidates have been blocked, they might find themselves also being blocked from standing again as councillors. Now, to go back to the original point, this really is entirely at odds with the rhetoric we saw from Keir Starmer today about giving away power. I want to give power away. You can't even give away power in the Labour Party. So to do so within the United Kingdom amongst the various regions of England and the nations of Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, I, I, I find that somewhat far-fetched. Jeremy Corbyn is probably, in terms of local um, favourability, probably one of the most liked local MPs in the country. What Keir Starmer is saying is that doesn't matter. So I think that does rather underscore the extent to which we should take some of his rhetoric Seriously, I, I would submit that we, we probably shouldn't. We're going to wrap up there. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me this Monday evening. Thank you for tuning in, everyone, tonight. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>